I am joined by Catherine Judge, Harvey J. Goldschmidt Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. She's written widely on banking, financial crises, and regulatory architecture, and she's the author of Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source. Professor, thanks so much for uh, for doing this. Uh, great, to, great to have you here. Great to be here. So I want to start off by asking about the banking system. I really want to talk about the federal home loan banking system, which does not get nearly as much attention as it deserves. But just to start off, how would you assess the current health of the U.S. banking system, given the uh, panics that occurred in, in March and April? Uneven. So what we're really seeing right now is incredible challenges of the banking system, but those are largely concentrated in the regional banking sector. Uh, we've seen, in, in, you know, naturally speaking, when interest rates go up, that creates both opportunities and challenges for banks. It oftentimes creates opportunities because they're able to, to increase what they're getting on the asset side without necessarily passing along the change interest rates on the, the liability side. So you can actually see increase in profitability as interest rates go up. But of course, there's a, a diminishing point over how long they can do that. And as those assets keep going down in value, they're going to be rendered weaker. Some of them are going to be insolvent. And suddenly some depositors are really going to want a little bit more. And so we saw this play out in the SNL crisis uh, really throughout the 80s. And, and we're seeing it play out right now with regional banks. And the regional banks, of course, have the additional challenge that they're holding on to a lot of commercial real estate and, and other assets that might have credit issues as well. So you put all the different pieces together. And I think the regional banks are still facing a lot of challenges, uh, whereas community banks and the, the GSIBs seems to be weathering this relatively well. Right. The, the SNL is the savings and loan crisis of the 80s and 90s. And you said banks can make more loans at higher yields, but that is, of course, if the economy continues to do well. If the economy doesn't, you know, they might not want to make those loans because they might not be, be paid back. And of course, their cost of funding for the regional banks is is really has skyrocketed uh, as money is leaving the banking system. Deposits are leaving the banking system, and they're replacing them with federal home loan bank borrowings and from the Federal Reserve. And you know, as a financial journalist, you know, I'm covering so much about the Federal Reserve, but really the amount of lending that the Federal Reserve has done to uh, the banking system in terms of the discount window and the new bank term funding program is, is really dwarfed by the uh, borrowings from the federal home loan bank, which you, you see on, on financial do you know, documents of and a report's federal home loan bank, but you always wonder what what is it the federal home loan bank? And and you're someone who you not only studied this uh, greatly, but you've got a lot of opinions about the federal home loan bank, and you think there are some abuses within the system. So first of all, let's just start. What is the federal home loan bank, and how large are the borrowings uh, uh, that, that the regional banks are borrowing from them? How how much are they relying on them right now? Yeah, so the federal home loan bank was created in 1932. And it was designed in large part to be a parallel to the Federal Reserve, but one that served thrifts and one that accepted mortgages as collateral. So at that point in time, we had 12 regional Federal Reserve banks battering the country. A lot of the control was actually still in those regional banks, but there was still real bills doctrine era. You know, they were really focused on commercial credit and they only allowed commercial banks to be members. And we'd had a rapid growth in thrift institutions in the decades leading up to the depression. But those thrift institutions were not allowed to be members of the Fed. 
and their assets were largely mortgages, which they could impose as collateral. So it also limited their ability to rely on banks to intermediate their access to the Fed. And, and as a result, uh, they were facing significant challenges. Housing was facing significant challenges. Generally, construction was down. Housing starts were down well over 90%. So this was actually under Hoover. Uh, really started the the efforts towards what we later on think about as a new deal and said, well, we need to find a way to support housing finance and to provide liquidity to these thrift institutions. And so they set up a, a system of, at that point, 11 regional banks under the oversight of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board. And those banks could obtain advances, so effectively collateralized loans from their regional Federal Home Loan Bank. And so it was, again, similar to the Fed, but slightly different in the sense of serving thrifts and also different in the sense that right from the beginning, part of the aim was to increase access to housing finance. So they were longer term loans than you ever had at the discount window. And they were really meant to encourage banks to extend more home loans to, to potential buyers. And so you wrote an article called The Problem Lender of Second to Last Resort. And what do you mean by the second to last resort? Are you saying the Federal Reserve is the first lender and the, the FLHB is the second uh, lender to last resort? And is that what you meant? Yeah. So I think about the Fed as being the very last resort. It's where you go when you have absolutely nowhere else to go. And what we've traditionally seen banks do, they've been doing it during this episode. They were doing it in 2007 during 2008. They did it during the SNL episode we talked about earlier. Uh, before they go to the Fed, before they go to the discount window and admit that they really need help with liquidity, they go to the federal home loan banks. So they take the residential mortgages, they take commercial real estate, uh, sometimes small business loans, and go to their federal home loan bank and say, you know, can you you provide us some additional liquidity uh, as we post these these assets as collateral? So part of what we see is banks do use the federal home loan banks to diversify their sources of funding, uh, even in normal periods. So it's not unusual for banks to borrow from the federal home loan banks. And that's one of the reasons that borrowing from the federal home loan banks doesn't have the stigma associated with discount window borrowing. But what we consistently see is during periods of distress, uh, all banks, and in particular troubled banks, substantially increase their reliance on federal home loan bank borrowings. So it's a way of accessing greater liquidity uh, without having to go to truly market-based sources of funding. Yeah, when it comes to liquidity provided to banks, the federal home loan bank system really uh, is is number one compared to the Federal Reserve. I mean, right now, the Federal Reserve, uh, via discount window and bank term funding program, is lent a little over $100 billion, whereas this year, I think the federal home loan bank system, you know, all the branches have uh, borrowed $600 billion and have an outstanding you know, note issuance of over a trillion dollars, and they're you know, issuing those advances uh, uh, to, to the, the bank. So it really is... Uh, not the only game in town, but really the, the number one game in town when it comes to providing liquidity to uh, banks. So, uh, Professor, in your uh, article about the problem lender of second to last resort, you note that Congress provided some perhaps deregulation or some changes to the federal home loan bank in, uh, I don't know, maybe the 1980s, you, you tell me. And this causes a, a series of problems that uh, the Federal Home Loan Bank has moved beyond its original intent and it, it mostly allows distressed banks to delay a reckoning and it, it could use reform. So you know, tell us, what did you mean by that? Let's, let's get into the weeds. 
Yeah. So the federal home loan bank system made a lot of sense when it was set up. At that point, we really did have thrift institutions that were very different than commercial banks, and it was providing liquidity and credit support for thrift institutions. What we saw with the early stages of the SNL debacle is the Congress came in and engaged in deregulation. And there's a whole variety of different forms of deregulation. But one of the things they allowed commercial banks to start making some home loans to try to provide more support in that area. And they also started to allow thrifts to engage in a much wider variety of activities. So suddenly the differences between thrifts providing residential loans and, and commercial banks really serving business needs became much fuzzier. And the, the two institutions started to look a lot more like one another. Uh, and then the real challenge came, the kicker came in 1989. So the SNL debacle had been growing for a period of time. We had insolvent thrifts. And at that point, they had a separate insurance fund for thrifts that was different than the FDIC. Um, and that insurance fund just didn't have enough money to close all the insolvent thrifts. And for a while, you know, Congress hoped that the deregulation would allow these troubled thrifts to earn their way back to health. But of course, they just dug themselves in deeper as they took on greater and greater risks. And so finally, Congress said, all right, we have to really clean this up, but it's going to cost us something. And, and they didn't really want to have to pay that uh, through the, the normal mechanisms because, of course, they were trying to hit deficit reduction targets. And so they're like, all right, well, how do we hit our deficit reduction targets and pretend that we're you know, not actually increasing spending while still coming up with the funds that we need to, to clean up? all of the insolvent thrifts that are out there. And their solution was the federal home loan banks. So the federal home loan banks, like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, before they were put into receivership, are government-sponsored enterprises, which means they're able to issue debt where there's an implied government backstop that allows them to issue debt on much more favorable terms. But at the same time, uh, they are not actually consolidated, and so they're not considered on balance sheet for the perspective of the federal government. So what the federal government said is like, all right, we're going to acquire the federal home loan banks and thrifts to put some money into this fund. But the real way we're going to fund the cleanup is by issuing these RefCorp bonds. And RefCorp was basically a shell corporation, but then it put a burden on the federal home loan banks going forward to pay off those bonds over time. And then Congress said, well, how are we going to allow the federal home loan bank system to generate enough revenue to pay off these bonds? They're like, well, we have to allow it to grow. So right when kind of the distinction between thrifts and banks was dissipating, at this point, thrifts had direct access to the Fed. They've been given that in 1980. So the reasons for the federal home loan bank system were actually kind of going away. We also had Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So we had a lot more support for residential lending generally. So we had a lot less reason to actually need the federal home loan bank system. Reasons potentially get rid of it. Instead, we did just the opposite. We suddenly allowed commercial banks, as long as they did a, a modest amount of residential lending when they first became members, to join the federal home loan bank system. And so instead, it got much bigger, and it also really became unmoored from that original focus on trying to promote uh, more accessibility to housing finance and more affordable homes. So you draw a distinction between commercial banks and thrifts. Could you just uh, outline that? Because... I and perhaps some viewers are familiar with investment banking versus commercial banking. You know, commercial banking, you're lending to businesses and, and people. For investment banking, you're you're on Wall Street uh, doing deals, stuff like that. And uh, you know, it was it was uh, separated. I think some regulation during the Great Depression, and then Bill Clinton, you know, unofficially, unofficially put it back together. But what do you mean when you say thrifts versus commercial banking? 
I love that you're asking that question because I think that shows how much thrifts have effectively become like banks, which they really have. Uh, so originally, commercial banks were just much more focused on serving commercial interests. And so they really focused on figuring out how they could serve the needs of businesses and to a lesser degree, uh, wealthy individuals. So it was up to other mechanisms to generate ways that ordinary Americans could accumulate wealth and more important, access housing financing. So if you go back to uh, when we first had the federal home loan bank system, like 1932, first of all, individuals played a huge role in the mortgage market. They were about 40% of the mortgage market, and that was uh, declining from what had been closer to 70 or 80%. So insurance- As borrowers in the market. Yeah, so it was it was individual lenders actually. So you had kind of the person selling the home, and at times wealthy individuals. But as a result, you had very little ability to access mortgage financing. It varied a lot by the region of the country that you're in, and most of the mortgage financing available had periods of less than five years, and they were interest only loans. So you were able to at times get a loan, but you might have a period of you know four you know four years or five years. Uh, you would have to come up with a 50% down payment was typical. And then you would have the entire principal due at the end of it. So that you had very limited access to housing finance. Thrifts came in uh, starting a few decades before that. It was actually modeled on something similar that had happened in the UK. Um, and so you had actually two British factory owners in Pennsylvania set this up effectively for the workers and the model spread where originally it operated as a mutual that existed for a finite period of time. So members would pool their money together, commit to making regular payments into this entity, and then there would be an auction over who kind of got to be next to, to borrow enough money to, to buy or build a home. And then over time, they evolved to be slightly more resilient structures where members could come and go over time and the entity continued to exist. But throughout, it was much more kind of the, the George Bailey uh, model um, where you didn't have demand deposits, but you could get your shares back usually with 30 or 60 days notice. It was really serving the interests of middle class and Americans. So you can go back and look at surveys of who the borrowers were. They were working in factories. They were working as housekeepers. Uh, they were working in, in, in various roles like that. And generally speaking, um, they really serve primarily housing finance at a time when it was otherwise lacking. So just you say 40% of the mortgage market was individual lenders. So it's just be wealthy individuals making deals and lending money as wealthy a bank. individuals and at times sellers. Yeah. So it was a huge part of the market. So that was part of what was interesting when we created the Federal Home Loan Bank. It was a little bit of a shift towards more financial uh, mechanisms and institutional mechanisms for the mortgage market. So they didn't allow commercial banks to be members because at that point, by law, they actually weren't even allowed. National banks, at least, were not allowed to engage in any mortgage lending. States, you know, state banks had varied a little bit, but they weren't playing a significant role. Thrifts were playing a big role. And actually, insurance companies played a role uh, largely in the secondary market because, again, they had uh, the ability to hold on to those long, slightly longer term assets. So it was actually all insurance companies and thrifts that were allowed to become members of the federal home loan banks. Got it. And federal home loan banks could only lend to those institutions and also was the collateral that they could take, they could only lend against uh, residential loans. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah. So originally it was just residential mortgages and because they partly wanted there to be incentives for people to create kind of 
residential mortgages that better suited the needs of ordinary Americans, they allowed the haircuts to be uh, slightly smaller when you had slightly longer term amortizing loans. So if you had a loan that was more than eight years and it was amortizing, which just meant that the person who bought the home was able to have those monthly payments reduce the principal that they owed alongside paying off interest, well, they were able to to loan, to borrow up to 60% of the face value of that loan. Right. So this system allowed a little bit more generous and easy uh, lending to the system, whereas in the rest of the, a lot of the rest of the world, there's not that. There's, you know, there's no Fannie Mae, uh, I don't know, Federal Home Loan Bank. So you actually still have that structure where, oh, you're borrowing for five years, 10 years. The 30-year fixed rate mortgage is uh, you know, somewhat rare uh, although in the world, although it's very popular in America. Okay. So now let's go back to the 1989 regulation. We have, what, what, were, the, what were those changes now that we have that information? Yeah. So the big change was they said, look, rather than getting rid of the federal home loan bank system, even though the original justifications for it have largely disappeared because the differences between thrifts and commercial banks are much smaller than they used to be. And thrifts now have the ability to go directly to the Fed uh, for, for additional financing. Instead, we're actually going to expand it. And again, we're expanding it in part because we have an interest in housing finance. But really, the primary reason we're expanding it is we want to be able to have a mechanism for cleaning up all of these insolvent thrifts without actually acknowledging that we're doing it. And so really it was a balance sheet gamesmanship that that drove the expansion and evolution of the federal home loan banks. So there was an expansion of who could join the federal home loan bank network. Was there other deregulation of, oh, now you can make, you can lend against other assets, not just residential mortgages? Yeah, so there was some expansion in the types of assets, and there was further expansion in Graham-Leach-Bliley as well. So you look at kind of almost a lot of the major banking acts, oftentimes there's modifications to the federal home loan banks as well. So so some of it was done as part of FERIA in 1989. Some of it was done a decade later as part of the, the broader derec- deregulation of Graham-Leach-Bliley. But over time, um, you see a significant broader set of of asset you can post at collateral. So, so for example, today, about 20% of the collateral that federal home loan banks are holding is commercial real estate. Yeah, I guess, I guess where are we now? It, it's, it's fair to say that the commercial uh, banks have, regional banks have borrowed a ton of money to, from the F- federal home loan bank to replace deposits that have left the banking system, right? And this is exactly what we've seen in the past. So you noted earlier that the federal home loan banks have been playing a much bigger role than the Fed in loaning in to the current banking crisis. The same thing happened in 2007 and 2008. And actually, the same thing happened in a different way during the the SNL crisis. So if you go back to 2007, 2008, really, the, the crisis kicked off in August 2007. I tend to date it the the failure of the the BNP funds. Mm-hmm. We saw a dramatic contraction in liquidity. We had the inner, you know, the the Fed cutting rates and trying to open the discount window and really recognizing there was a meaningful liquidity event. So so August 2007 is where suddenly things started to look bad. And liquidity conditions remained strained for the 13 months uh, leading up to then the failure of Lehman Brothers. So we had a long run-up, actually, during that period of time. And what we saw is that banks turned to the federal home loan banks. So very early on in 2007, there was a dramatic increase in the borrowing from the federal home loan banks. 
And that continued to be true throughout early 2008. So it wasn't until probably May 2008, a couple of months after the failure of Bear Stearns, that the various Fed facilities actually had more borrowing going through them than the federal home loan bank system. Um, and in some ways, you could say this is good because we want more liquidity in the system. So the people who defend the federal home loan banks say, look, like liquidity is really important when banks have access to liquidity that smooths market functioning and they, uh, allows them to, to lend on funds in ways that help them to support the real economy. And that's certainly true. Uh, but part of what we see, first of all, is as is the case right now, troubled banks borrow more. <laughs> so if you look at the SNL crisis, uh, the Thrifts that actually failed were far more likely to borrow from the federal home loan banks than the thrifts that didn't fail, and they borrowed more than thrifts that didn't fail. If you look back at 2007 and 2008, IndyMac, Washington Mutual, Countrywide, like all of the banks that got in trouble were also all of the banks that were the biggest borrowers from the federal home loan bank system. And just as importantly, and this is another core challenge, it puts the Fed one step removed from understanding where the acute challenges might be and how big the challenges might be that the banks are really facing. So, uh, you know, you actually look at the, the reports from the where things stood at the end of 2022 for the federal home loan bank system. And first of all, if you can look at individual banks, you look at something like the federal home loan bank of San Francisco, SVB wasn't a borrower at all. <laughs> At the end of 2021, it was the biggest borrower at the end of 2022. And I think First Republic was the second largest. Yes, exactly. Uh, but you can also see that when you look at the federal home loan bank system at the old. You look at the end of 2021, and it's largely large financial institutions, so it's JP Morgan and MetLife, that are among the top five borrowers from the federal home loan bank system. You look at the end of 2022, which is long before we got into the March turmoil, it's Wells Fargo and four regional banks, right? So this is an early warning signal that would have been available to the Fed potentially even earlier that, look, regional banks are actually facing trouble. Like regional banks are substantially increasing their borrowing from federal home loan banks. And we, we saw that happening across the way. And we saw that happening with particular banks. And it's not a red flag saying, okay, these banks are guaranteed to fail, but it is a very meaningful yellow flag that we know very often before banks fail, they significantly increase their reliance on federal home loan bank borrowing. And when there's system-wide demand for advances, which are kind of the term for the loans from the federal mm -hmm. home loan banks, that that's a sign that the banking system as a whole is, is in trouble. So part of what we have is like more liquidity and that allows things to go on. But sometimes you actually don't want things to kind of go on. You want policymakers to be forced to deal with the fact that they're facing a bigger challenge. So going back to 2007 and 2008, it definitely eased financing conditions in October and November of 2007. Uh, and you know, TAF was largely for non-US banks, partly because they weren't act tapping the federal home loan banks in the same way. That's part of the reason the term auction facility uh, really didn't have as many US borrowers. Um, the what facility? On, Sorry. The term auction, term auction facility. This was the Fed's effort to create a destigmatized alternative to the discount window to provide more mm -hmm. liquidity into the the banking system in in late 2007. So it was one of the the early efforts by the Fed to say, look, we need to be doing more. Um, but part of what's interesting is they, the Fed just doesn't have direct a direct connection. They can ask for the information, but they're not paying as much of attention to the federal home loan bank borrowing. And it doesn't put them in that sore spot 
of actually trying to figure out, like, is there something bigger here that we really need to deal with? And so I would, again, for 2007, 2008, I would argue that part of the challenge is delaying things from August 2007 to when things really exploded with Lehman and AIG in September 2008 actually allowed the overall system to become more fragile and banks to become even more undercapitalized in ways that aggravated the size of the crisis that followed. So a little liquidity can be good in stabilizing things, but they can also make it easier for policymakers to ignore just how big of a challenge they're facing. Right. And I think it's roughly accurate to say that the advance rate, the rate at which the federal home loan banks lend to uh, private banks is roughly uh, equivalent to the federal Fed funds rates, you know, plus a few uh, basis points or something like that. So when interest rates were at zero, it made sense for JP Morgan to borrow from the FHLB a little bit above zero. Uh, and I, I was ori- originally confused as to why JP Morgan was one of the biggest borrowers, but interest rates were at zero. Now that the interest rate is at 5.25%, the only reason why banks would borrow at 5.25% is if they have no all- other alternative. Whereas JP Morgan, Bank of America, they've still got you know millions of people willing to deposit money at essentially zero interest, whereas a lot of regional banks don't. Uh, tell us about what happens if the loans go bad. So far, uh, credit loan performance has been very good. Not a lot of defaults really at all. In some cases, defaults are uh, negative uh, for some mathematical reason. I I don't understand. But in 2007, 2008, when a bank, IndyMac, posted uh, its subprime portfolio uh, and some of those loans, a lot of those loans went bad, what's the FHLB's uh, recourse? What happened? So they have, and they love to advertise this, they have never lost a cent on any advance to any bank. Because that is the natural question, right? You know, it's like, why are they fail like like making loans to all these failed banks? Aren't they eventually going to like struggle as a result? Two key reasons: one, they do demand a lot of collateral, and they increase haircuts during periods of stress, which is actually the right thing if what you're doing is kind of engaging in your own risk management techniques. It's the wrong thing to do if what you're supposed to be doing is a public serving role of increasing liquidity during periods of distress. So one, they demand a lot of collateral, they increase haircuts during periods of distress, and that covers much of their position. Second, and also quite importantly, they have what is often called the super lien, Mm. which means any advances outstanding to the federal home loan banks get paid back in full before the FDIC or any depositors see a dime. So as a practical matter, when a bank fails, even if it's IndyMac, even if it's a bank with significant losses, they have more than enough assets to at least pay off the federal home loan banks. Uh, but then that means there's less money left over, there's less assets left over for the FDIC and for other depositors, if there are uninsured depositors. So the federal home loan banks get made whole, but it's not because they're doing a great job with risk management. It's certainly not because they're actually monitoring the creditworthiness of the banks borrowing from them. It's because they have this incredible statutory advantage. Got it. Okay. Th- thanks for that. And it, I think it's, it's also true about the Federal Reserve. If a Federal Reserve lends against the discount window, it's lending against treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities. So it doesn't lose money, right? And so that, that it's the, the more loans, the more borrowings from the FHLB and the Fed, 
the the less uh, I guess collateral there is for the the FDIC if the if and when the bank fails. Yeah, though a fun little tidbit is precisely because of this, you know, borrowing money from the Fed was one of the other mechanisms, along with borrowing them from the federal home loan banks, uh, that potentially increased losses to the insurance funds, FSLIC and FDIC, over the SNL crisis. And so that's actually when Congress went in and required the Fed to actually uh, care about uh, the health of the institutions on the other side. So up until that point, discount window borrowing, uh, there was no actually obligation to to consider the health of the institution. That was changed somewhat in Faria, and then subsequently, I believe, is Faria was certainly part of the SNL uh, reforms, and then further refined uh, during Dodd Frank. So the the Fed, I think, generally speaking, just has a better set of incentives. So if we think about the two different structures, even just as a governance matter. Uh, both of them started off looking quite similar, right? There were 11 or 12, uh, depending on which one you're talking about, regional banks that scattered the country. Much of the board of directors of those regional banks were from member institutions, along with some public representatives. And then you had this DC oversight board overseeing operations. But what we've really seen happen with the Fed over time is the role of the regional of the regional banks, uh, not not regional in the the community regional uh, distinction, but instead uh, the the role of the the banks that are members of the Fed uh, has declined significantly, and the the public facing role of the Fed has increased significantly. And this has happened through changes in the law and also changes in norms. I mean, it's clear in even like the, the voting structure of the FOMC, where seven of the 12 votes go to, to members of the Board of Governors who are you know, presidentially appointed and, and Senate confirmed. So we've really had a system that started as a public-private system become increasingly public and increasingly accountable to the public over time. The federal home loan banks, that hasn't happened at all. Uh, so you still have much of the, the majority of the board is member institutions. And as a practical matter, they're making decisions that benefit member institutions. So not only do they have access to advances on these very favorable terms, you know, they are also earning a, a very nice rate of return. A lot of it's getting passed on to dividends to members. So kind of the public benefit of what they do is, is much smaller than the, the private benefit that accrues to member institutions. Right. And so the, the Federal Reserve, I think technically it is still the case that it had it is a privately owned. So JP Morgan owns a stake. Other banks own a stake, but they get some sort of nominal dividend and you know, Jamie Dimon is not calling Jay Powell saying we need more. I mean, it's, it is a public entity and uh, it, it, that, that really is kind of just like a, a formality. Um, whereas the Federal Home Loan Bank also equity ownership is is in the member banks. And so I think, you know, it's the, lar- the largest holders are you know the major bank, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, Bank of America. And they but they also get a percentage of, of the profits. Uh, but but how big is that system? In other words, if you have the Federal Reserve, they make decisions to, you know, I mean, they have their, their two dual mandate of uh, low unemployment and stable inflation, as well as financial stability. If they're making a loan, it's just kind of help the system, uh, even though that may have, you know, consequences down the road, moral hazard. But, and a private bank, obviously, they're doing it to make money. Uh, where is the Federal Home Loan Bank on that spectrum? Because it has people who, you know, are they doing loans to make to make money? Is it profit driven or is it stability driven? 
And yeah, I mean, what, what happens when uh, those incentives clash? Um, I mean, I think it's profit and stability here actually can go hand in hand, but they can go hand in hand in ways that work contrary to what I think are the better aims of the federal home loan bank system. So um, if, first of all, if you look at it, the the compensation for the uh, leadership is much greater than it is even at the reserve banks, which is better than it is, you know, at the board of governors. Uh, but they also have a lot of incentive compensation that's really about increasing profitability and not taking too much risk. And, and that is part of why they're loaning money that's going to large institutions and that is very well collateralized. Um, and that does, in some ways, reduce the risk the federal home loan banks are exposed to. It increases their profitability because, again, they have the biggest source of their profitability is the fact that they're able to issue debt with the implicit government backstop. Um, and there's, we, we can go into that more if you want to as well. The, the changes in the money market fund rules also created new demand uh, for the, the instruments that they issue. But so there's a, on one hand, they're issuing effect what are treated as government securities to fund all of their activities. Uh, and then they're able to, as a result, generate very significant profits. And if we look, their retained earnings have really increased substantially over time. And every single one of the federal home loan banks has been paying out dividends at a very nice rate to member institutions. Okay. So they're trying to make money. They're a for-profit entity, whereas the Federal Reserve, definitely not a for-profit entity. If you look at their sort of cash flow, they're paying 5.25% or 5% to people who are in the reverse repo facility, and they're earning 2% or 3% on the mortgages that they bought, mortgage-backed securities that they bought in 2020. So Federal Reserve, definitely not a for-profit entity, uh, but the FHLB is. And also the Federal Reserve can print money, but the FHLB funds itself not by printing money, but by issuing notes uh, and bonds that the public buys, and they have attractive financing because they have a, a government guarantee. Yeah, and they're government-sponsored enterprise, so it is a different charter. They do have members of the board of directors that are supposed to be public service members, and they do have a number of ways that they do create some public benefits. The biggest one at this point is 10% of their net earnings have to go to affordable home programs. Uh, so that does help address you know, home affordability, but that's a relatively small benefit uh, relative to the implied cost to taxpayers if you take into account kind of the cheap funding that they enjoy, uh, that the system costs to maintain. Sorry to interrupt, wanted to let you know about Blockworks upcoming crypto event, Permissionless 2. This ultimate DeFi gathering will be taking place in Austin on the 11th to the 13th of September, 2023. It will feature the very best discussions on ZK tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, and much, much more. All the big hitters in crypto are gonna be there. So if you're into crypto, you need to be there too. To get a 20% discount to a full three-day pass to Permissionless 2, click the link in the description and use code GUIDANCE20. That's GUIDANCE20. Thanks. Let's get back to the episode. So in your piece, you write, uh, it's time to put an end to these abuses, capping the advances that FLG banks can extend to any member institution to 2% of outstanding advances would go a long way towards preventing large troubled banks from using FHLB advances to delay a needed reckoning. So 
what precisely are are those abuses and and why do you think this cap would be necessary? Yeah, and the cap is just one idea. So one thing also I should note is Sandra Thompson, who's the current head of the FHFA, which is the current uh, body that oversees the federal home loan banks, along with Fannie and Freddie, is undertaking a comprehensive review of the federal home loan bank system. We're expecting a report out in September 20. Uh, 23. So we are going to hopefully see some changes. I don't think they're going to be as dramatic as would be helpful, but there's at least some kind of consideration of these issues underway. Uh, So one of the challenges, again, is as uh, financial institutions have grown in size, part of what we've seen is the biggest beneficiaries of the federal home loan bank system are the biggest banks. And I don't think there's any reason to necessarily deny them membership. Um, But it's not clear that through their membership, we're getting significant public benefits other than the fact that the federal home loan bank system is slightly more profitable because it's able to make slightly more advances. Those advances are relatively more safe. I mean, I think the likelihood of the federal home loan bank losing money from loaning money to JP Morgan is basically zilch. Uh, So you were kind of increasing profitability, but really that profitability isn't that much different than the opportunism that we saw with the RefCorp bonds where Congress is like, oh, look, this is effectively free money. So like why, well, you know, and, and there's been debates over whether or not that affordable home program uh, contribution should be 15% or 20% as opposed to 10%. But all of those proposals in my mind are really underutilizing what the system could be. It's really just saying, let's fir- take further advantage of the fact that we're doing this thing off balance sheet. And in taking further advantage of doing this thing off balance sheet, uh, we're going to kind of yield some, some profits that might be used for some productive purposes, but in a really inefficient and distortive way. So then the idea is like what to do with it. And one of the idea of the 2% cap is even though community banks have actually weathered the recent storm uh, that has ensnarled regional banks incredibly well, and it's important to note that the community banks are coming through much better than the regionals, uh, long term, they still face a lot of challenges, right? We are in a digitalized environment. Uh, they aren't as well suited for that environment. And, and there's our challenges with scale. So part of what's saying, if we still care about having a vibrant community bank system, if we still care about smaller regional banks, uh, why don't we allow the benefits of the system to flow disproportionately to those smaller banks? And so we help to maintain some vibrancy. Uh, in those smaller institutions rather than than benefiting all institutions and therefore disproportionately benefiting the biggest players who are able to to most utilize it. And then second is just the fact that troubled banks continually rely on advances uh, as a way of putting off uh, actually dealing with whatever it is that they need to deal with and putting more frictions in the ability of troubled institutions to increase their borrowing, I think could be very helpful, both for the troubled institutions themselves, but also in terms of alerting the Fed earlier on to institutions that are in trouble and system-wide demand for liquidity. So just doing some back of the envelope uh, math. So I'm looking at the San Francisco Fed report, excuse me, not Fed, San Francisco FHLB report from March 31st, so the end of quarter. They had slightly over 100 billion in advances. Let's call it 100 billion. And then from your uh, article, I am found out that SVVB borrowed 15 billion from the Federal Home Loan Bank of, of San Francisco before its messy demise. So uh, f- about 15% of FHLB banks' uh, outstanding advances 
were to one specific bank, Silicon Valley Bank. So you want to cap that to 2%. So they only Silicon Valley Bank only would have gone to $2 billion instead of $15 billion. In what way, how do you think you know, that story would have played out uh, instead of the way, the way it did? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, so I think as a practical matter, SVB would have had to go to the Fed earlier than it did. And I think that would have been, or potentially would have had to think about the capital raise that got it into so much trouble earlier than it did. And I think undertaking any of those actions earlier than they did and potentially in a more orderly fashion uh, would have had some meaningful advantages in terms of getting the right people in the room and having them own up to the severity of the challenges at an earlier stage in the game. Um, and again, part of what's interesting for the Federal Home Bank of San Francisco is, or sorry, I mean, first of all, Federal Home Bank of San Francisco, we'll just say is a continual tr- troubled player, right? It also, if you go back to 2007 and 2008, of all of the regional banks, it had the most loans outstanding uh, to banks that ended up subsequently being troubled institutions. So they've consistently had a pattern of doing this. Uh, but for SVB particularly, it'd be interesting to actually go back and look at the increased borrowing from the federal home loan bank system over the course of 2021. Because part of what you would actually want to see and part of what hopefully you would see is that it was some point in that, that curve, so some point much earlier in 2021, uh, when interest rates weren't actually as high as they are today, when the losses on the treasuries that they're holding and the mortgage backed securities that they're holding were not as great, uh, that they would have been forced to try to figure out, well, how do we actually keep funding our operations? Um, and I think forcing hard questions earlier, even if unpleasant, tends to result in there being uh, a more attractive array of possible avenues forward. Okay. Uh, now, now let's move on to bank regulation. Uh, there were a lot of bank regulations in the wake of the great financial crisis. I'm not familiar with the details. You are. Uh, in many ways, they in some ways seemed uh, uh, ready for the challenge. Oh, b- banks uh, have much less risk. And you know, we haven't had a, a ton of bank failures uh, you know, after 2010 or 2011. But now our, you know, a couple issues are, are coming to the, the fore. What uh, bank regulation issues, uh, do, what bank regulations, uh, if any, do you think are necessary to improve the system? And I know there have been a lot of proposals. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about those proposals and, and what uh, like, might likely be, you know, be, how that might impact the bank system? Yeah. Um, so this is kind of shifting away from the federal home loan banks uh, completely. I mean, there are a number, I think, modest proposals that are immediately on the table and some bigger picture thinking that has been going on. Uh, I mean, I think the the immediate challenges, again, really center around the regional banks. And I think that pain is going to continue to grow. I think depositors are awake to the risk of these institutions and just as importantly, depositors are more awake than they ever have been to how much they're forgoing in terms of interest uh, by, by staying in the banking system. And, and once that's the case, banks have to pay a much higher rate of interest to those depositors uh, to hold on to them 
or you know they have to go to broker deposits, which we're seeing the regional banks do uh, rely more heavily on broker deposits. They have to go to the federal home bank. All of those are much higher sources of funding. And once you have higher sources of funding on the liability side, you're really squeezing net interest margin. Uh, so we have real challenges, I think, there for the regional banks. Uh, Professor, for, for our audience, what are broker deposits exactly? Yeah, so broker deposits, broadly speaking, are when you're paying some type of intermediary uh, to be able to, to attract new deposits to your institution. Again, I mean, if we think about what banks do when they get into trouble, the idea is that they go to the Fed and they go to the discount window. In practice, they don't want to go to the Fed and they don't want to go to the discount window. So like, okay, well, what else can we do for liquidity? The biggest thing they do by far, we've been talking about federal home loan bank system. The other thing they do is they try to figure out, well, we still have government insurance. How can we exploit that to attract people into our bank? So um, there's been some really nice work by, for example, Varelacharya and Natamora uh, looking at kind of what was happening with bank deposits during 2007 and 2008. Uh, and part of what we saw is that troubled banks offered higher rates of interest on both demand deposits and CDs. So if you look at like the four largest banks that ended up kind of either failed or near failure, they were paying 100 basis points more on 12-month CDs, 130 basis points more on longer-term CDs. If we go back to the SNL crisis, uh, again, we saw SNLs offering much higher rates of interest on insured products in ways that allowed them to continue to hold on to insured deposits, uh, even when they were insolvent. So in a place like Texas that had a high concentration of insolvent SNLs, it not only meant that you know the SNLs were paying a lot more for the deposits, but even healthy banks in Texas had to pay 50 basis points more just to hold on to deposits because again, competition was more geographically constrained at that time and they were facing competition. So really what banks do is they're like, okay, like let's use all of our government levers that we can before going uh, to the discount window. And so part of the question is like, you know, how can we like make those serve as alarm bells uh, earlier on? Going back to the current situation, you know, it's part of what we see regional banks doing. And, and so really, I think we need to figure out what to do about regional banks. Uh, and they also have, again, asset side challenges. There's a lot more commercial real estate uh, on the asset side of the uh, regional bank balance sheet than there is for something like JP Morgan. Um, and so that does mean, again, we'll see what happens with office. We'll see what happens with, with other domains in commercial real estate, but there's potentially losses that are going to come there. Uh, and so the question is like, what do we do going forward? And I, I mean, I think in the short run, one of the things we have to do is just increase the tools that we know work generally for banks. I mean, I think one of the biggest lessons from March is the need to invoke the systemic risk exception for both SVB and Signature, the very significant losses to the deposit insurance fund that came along with the failure of First Republic suggest we don't have a good exit plan for these banks. And once there's no attractive exit plan that doesn't result in significant losses to the diff, then you need to have, I think, more robust regulation to make failure less likely. So and we, go ahead. Yeah, so the, the DIF is the uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation's uh, fund that uses to, to uh, fund you know, uh, the making, making whole of depositors after a bank fails. So I think it's proposed, it hasn't happened yet, that big banks may face higher capital requirements 
Uh, this may not be on those smaller regional banks, uh, although a lot of people who work at regional banks say that, oh, it's going to come to come down to us. It's going to sort of this regulation is going to trickle down to us, even though officially the, the, you know, it says that it's only for the, the big banks. And of course, the, the big banks just officially passed the Fed's stress test that came out yesterday on June 28th. We're recording on June 29th. Sorry. I, mean, I think, the, I think the, a lot of the bigger picture question going forward is oh. – what do we care about with respect to the structure of the banking system and why, right? So you're right, like higher capital requirements are coming down for the largest banks. That was already underway as a result of Basel III and the holistic capital review that that Michael Barr, who's currently the vice chair for supervision at the Fed, uh, had undertaken shortly after he came into that role. So large banks were already going to face more robust requirements. And, and that is certainly going to proceed apace. I think we're likely to see more robust regulation, more of the enhanced prudential standards being applied to regional banks in the $100 billion to $250 billion range. And again, that is in part because the current statutory scheme gives the Fed discretion over what enhanced, some of the, some discretion, with respect to what enhanced prudential standards to apply to banks in that size range. And again, once we know that the failure of those banks could have systemic repercussions and could impose significant losses on the deposit insurance fund, then we need to have a more appropriate suite of regulations that make those failures less likely. So I think all of that is really appropriate. And then I think there's just a bunch of bigger picture questions. You know, what do we do with deposit insurance? Uh, but I think sometimes framing it around what do we do with deposit insurance is missing some of the, the bigger picture issues, which is the structure of the banking system and the role of banks relative to non-banks in providing credit, facilitating uh, and facilitating payments and providing other services. And so I think part of what's really interesting right now is not just the okay, we have the regional bank crisis somewhat contained. We're likely to see significant losses there. We might see a, a hollowing out of regional banks um, as a type of banking entity. I don't think they're going to disappear, but there's certainly the possibility that it becomes a less viable business model once they are regulated in a way that's commensurate with the risks that they pose. Um, but I think there's also big questions over you know, how much of this stays in the banking space and how much of this actually moves outside of banks. I think one of the really bright spots right now that hasn't gotten enough attention is the Treasury Department issued two pieces of guidance. Actually, I shouldn't say the Treasury Department. The Financial Stability Oversight Council, under the leadership of the Treasury Department, issued two pieces of guidance that would effectively revive designation authority, which is the ability of FSOC to designate non-bank systemically significant and subject them to to enhance regulation accordingly and, and Fed oversight. Uh, and they also provided a really nice analytical framework uh, for trying to understand how we identify systemic risk outside of the banking system. And I think that is absolutely key. So we certainly have to be focused on banks, what we can do to make the banking system healthier. Uh, we also have to be very tuned to the fact that the more we do to create a healthy banking system, the more we're likely to squeeze that system in ways that facilitate the flow of activity outside of that system. And we really do need to have a much better set of tools than we currently do for understanding and potentially addressing the, the risks that can arise as, as activity moves. Okay. So, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but for 
banks who have to hold equity capital against all of their assets, let's say it's it's uh, 10%. The dominant form of uh, the, the, the you know, uh, equity tier ratio that people care a lot about is common at core equity tier one, or common equity tier one. And that is a risk-based weighting. So if you have a dollar worth of US treasuries, very different risk weighting than if you have a dollar worth of you know, a subprime mortgage. And so credit risk, really those risk weightings uh, went up a lot after the great financial crisis. That's my, my understanding. But for those uh, quote risk-free credit risk-free instruments such as treasuries, no credit risk, and then and then uh, agency mortgage-backed securities, very little credit risk from a, a GCC or a federal home loan bank uh, advance or something uh, exactly no something <laughs> like that. Uh, it's ranging from zero percent to twenty percent, and. Is, does it make sense for those to be fixed amounts? Because if interest rates are going to you know, remain at zero forever, it makes sense that a U.S. A two-year treasury note has a risk rating of, of zero. Uh, but if interest rates are going to go from 0% to 5% in one year, it seems like a risk rating of 0% is grossly inappropriate. Yeah. So two quick comments on that. One, um, when we look at the risk weightings, they, generally speaking, have been far more focused on credit risk than interest rate risk. And they also are in part the byproduct of a set of politics that inform not just what happened in the United States, but what happens in Basel, right? So, so when you think about banks, sovereign risk and interest rate risk are actually two of the, the greatest risks that they're always exposed to. Um, and they're not well reflected in the, the risk weightings at all. Uh, but that's part of the fact that we expect or I expect bank regulations to always be incomplete. And I think we need to expect bank regulations to be incomplete. And that's part of the reason we need banks to be doing a good job with risk management. And we need supervision to come in and complement the regulatory scheme in terms of trying to understand where and how my banks be assuming risks in ways that are not well captured in the current regulatory scheme. So one, we should always update regulatory schemes in light of learning. And there are questions over, should we be thinking more about duration risk? We've done that some with that stable funding ratio and, and liquidity coverage ratio, uh, but maybe there's more work to be done there. But I think a different way of thinking about it is let's expect the rules to be incomplete. And then let's use tools like stress testing, uh, tools such as supervision, to really make sure that alongside the compliance exercise, banks are able to and are engaging in forward-looking assessments over what are the risks that they are exposed to and what are they doing to manage those risks. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto. Some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols, there's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com sign up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. 
And do you think that uh, held to maturity accounting uh, might be wise to take a look at that, given that you know Sil- Silicon Valley they were quoting their mortgage-backed securities and treasuries at par at, at 100 cents on the dollar because when they bought them there, interest rates were at zero. But when you know now they're suddenly they're worth 80 cents on the dollar if they were to trade them in the market, they were valuing them on their balance sheet at 100 cents on the dollar. And correct me if I'm wrong, that that you know that accounting uh, somewhat not not fictitious but incorrect accounting. Uh, I mean, everyone knows it's incorrect. Uh, was used for their uh, capital ratio, so that if you if you took into account those losses, they they had a very low capital base ratio. I think negative. I don't. I don't want to say because I'm not sure. Uh, but if you quoted those assets a par as Silicon Valley Bank did, it passed its stress test with flying colors. It's not a stress test, but it it, it was uh, in compliance with its uh, common equity tier one thing. When you know, obviously there was a huge amount of risk there. So number one, do you think that? Uh, uh, held to maturity accounting needs to be looked at? And number two, do you think it's likely that it will be looked at in this upcoming round of regulation? I think it certainly is going to be looked at questions over how much should be marked to market and whether it should be marked to market for accounting purposes or for regulatory purposes or both are always kind of issues that get debated uh, whenever we have banking challenges, because you oftentimes do have losses that that are embedded on the asset side that had they been recognized earlier uh, might have resulted in in earlier interventions. Uh, So I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think for regulatory purposes, for any of the the larger regional banks, it's clear that they should be subject to treatment that looks more like the GSIBs, where they actually do have to take those losses into account uh, in doing their capital calculations. Uh, That being said, um, there is a little bit of attention and maybe it's attention that shapes the world that we're that reflects the world that we're in and how much it has changed between the nature nature of banking and the business of banking and marking to market all of the assets that a bank holds uh, on the asset side of its balance sheet, in part, and this is where we started the conversation, because oftentimes in the interest rate environments where there are losses on the asset side of their balance sheet those are going to be somewhat offset as a practical matter in terms of their their ongoing income by virtue that there's kind of implicit gains on the liability side and that historically, at least, they didn't need to pass all of the changed interest rate environment onto depositors. And it could well be that that's changing. And I think it's one of the things we really need to pay a lot of attention to and pay very close attention to Uh and I think for the the larger banks, I mean, again, the regionals for me at this point, now that we know they're so difficult to resolve, we need to have much stricter set of, of oversight in place. Uh, for a small community bank, where if we actually look at the deposits at community banks, you know, in the period leading up to March, deposits were going out of GSIBs at the fastest rate because they wanted a higher rate of return. Regionals at a slower, slightly lower rate, steady at community banks. March hits, suddenly the outflows from regionals, you know, outdwarf everything else. Uh, there's still some aggregate outflows, net outflows from the large banks in the sense that you have money flowing in, but also still money going out because of the interest rate environment. Community banks, still stable. So I think there's something to be said for a lot of these small community banks, and maybe it's just kind of the community financial institutions, uh, where they still really are engaged in an accrual business and allowing them to have accounting treatment that reflects the nature of the business that they're engaged in seems appropriate. 
T- tell us about your book, uh, Direct, The Rise of the Middleman, Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source. What was the co- sort of core thesis that drove you to write that book? And how might you apply that thinking to the U.S. banking system and everything we've been talking about? Yeah. I mean, so the core idea that drove the book was I, I'm a banking scholar. That's where I spent all of my time. And anybody who knows banking knows that there have been two really big trends. Uh, one, a dramatic decrease in the the number of banks and a increase in the proportion of assets held by the largest banks. So we went from having unit banks with lots of small banks that really engaged in relationship lending to having the top six banks control most of the assets in the U.S. banking system. And that really changed the nature of banking. They had a lot of access to resources, access to data that allowed them to standardize underwriting that facilitated the growth of securitization. It certainly had been around for over a century, but it it grew exponentially uh, as there were more tools available uh, to to really standardize or seem to standardize loan products, uh, and that allowed kind of these new complex and very long chains through which uh, cash was suddenly flowing from money market mutual funds into asset-backed commercial paper, uh, all the way through into mortgage-backed securities and then you know home loans. And so we ended up with longer and more complex uh, chains. It created meaningful short-term efficiencies. I mean, home ownership was at a peak uh, in 2006. Uh, so there were a lot of benefits that seemed to flow from this, but of course there was fragility, there was loss of information and some drawbacks. The book was motivated by the fact that I realized the same two phenomenon were arising in intermediation generally, and they were feeding off of each other in somewhat similar ways, and they potentially gave rise to similar sources of fragility. Uh, so we've seen Amazon and Walmart are one and two on the Fortune 500, uh, and they have been for a while. Uh, you look at a lot of industries, uh, the intermediaries involved, Cargill, you know, we don't think about that much. It's oftentimes one of the largest private companies in the country produce more billionaires uh, than any other uh, company actually out there. Uh, and it doesn't grow food, uh, it, but what it really does is facilitate the flows. And so what we saw these intermediaries who are growing in power because they're playing really important roles, uh, helping to overcome information challenges, logistical challenges, developing expertise, creating very valuable infrastructure, uh, but that allows them to grow in size and power over time, and then also results in standardization that re- tends to lead to longer and more complex supply chains. So you have kind of production disaggregated with each little piece being done wherever it's being done most cheaply. Again, we have cheaper clothes, we have cheaper food, but we also have sources of fragility. So actually, when I sold the idea for the book in January 2020, I was like, you know what? Supply chains are much more fragile than anybody realizes. I actually struggled during the early period of the pandemic. People forget this. But early on, actually, supply chains looked like they were holding up well. So I was like having to go back and like revisit my core thesis. Uh, but of course, the other shoe dropped. And of course, now for geopolitical reasons, we're realizing that this complexity and the information loss that comes along with it also creates different sources of vulnerability. So a lot of the book is an exploration of saying we really need to understand intermediation structures much more than we do, and that there's real payoffs from from doing so in terms of usually more intermediation create short-term efficiencies. So it's the path of least resistance, but very often there's long-term cost, whether it's increased fragility, loss of information, 
that customers might end up wanting or investors might end up wanting, whether it's about carbon footprint or the way workers are treated. Uh, and then there's just kind of less resilience built into that system. And so it tries to map out uh, a lot of the trade-offs and how we might put more of a thumb on the scale for some of the shorter and more resilient chains. So who are the biggest middlemen in the financial industry? I mean, I think about the largest banks as really being the largest middlemen because it's a lot of what they're doing. It's certainly not the only thing they're doing. I mean, it should be clear. Most middlemen are not just intermediating. They're also providing other services along with that intermediation. Uh, but a lot of what you're paying them to do is kind of use their reputation and use their connection to facilitate flows of capital uh, from people who have it to people who need it. And that's a very valuable service, uh, but it's also a service from which they, for which they manage to to profit significantly. And off, some of those profits are generated. And sometimes they use kind of all of their expertise to entrench structures that are actually relatively outdated and where we kind of would be better off with something else. Uh, to tie, tie this all back around to a very different example, I certainly don't explore in the book, to the federal home loan banks, uh, this was a little bit of a tension. Uh, again, I think generally shorter chains tend to result in more accountability uh, and more transparency and a little more resilience. Um, we go back to the SEC, you know, after 2008 and a lot of pressure from FSOC, they finally said, okay, we're going to do something about money market mutual funds. And our focus is going to be on institutional prime money market mutual funds, because that's where the problem arose. So these are the money market mutual funds that were largely holding commercial paper issued by banks. And, you know, they did years of analysis, came up with in hundreds of pages of analysis and they said, there's so many different types of investors holding institutional money market mutual funds in, these prime, in the prime space. We think they're going to go into a dozen different types of assets. As a practical matter, almost all of them went to one. They went to government money market mutual funds, oftentimes in the very same fund family. Well, how did government money market mutual funds manage to grow so rapidly? The federal home loan banks came in. So they increased their advances, the loans they were making to banks, and they increased the amount of short-term liabilities that they were issuing. So now those government money market mutual funds could come in. And so now what we have is you still have the bank that's getting the funding on one end and a money market mutual fund investor on the other end. Uh, but instead of having uh, just one node, the money market mutual fund standing in between the two, you now have two, the federal home loan bank which is engaging a lot more liquidity transformation than it ever used to, along with the fund family. And just nobody thought about this at the time. And I'd say it's something we, at the very least, ought to consider whether or not this is really what we wanted. That's really interesting. And I think a, a fair amount of the federal home loan bank's uh, issuances are callable, meaning if interest rates go down, they can refinance. So it's kind of uh, selling a little bit or, or, or of optionality to the market, which is which is interesting. I, uh, uh, Professor, I've got two final questions for you. The first is you, you just raised uh, the SEC. Uh, how have you, as a legal scholar and lawyer, how have you been observing the SEC's uh, venture and attempts to regulate crypto, uh, which you know to some seem very overdue and to others seem like a total uh, overreach of their authority. Uh, I'm in the overdue camp. Um, I mean, part of what's really interesting for crypto is there were a whole variety of regulations, and I would put securities regulations among them, 
where if you look at the design of many of the instruments, should have been applied early on. I actually think one of the more important than securities regulations even are anti-money laundering laws, right? And we saw Treasury and FinCEN uh, coming out very early on in 2013 saying, you know what, like you actually have to have a risk-based compliance system uh, if you're active in the space. But then we saw very little enforcement and we saw a proliferation of crypto in ways that really could facilitate uh, and at times were designed to facilitate anonymity uh, and undermine the functioning of that entire system. So I do think that there's what right now is being considered by some kind of regulation by enforcement is, is largely enforcing of the law. And again, We'll see how all of it plays out, and I, I don't have opinions on any of the, the particular recent maneuvers, but generally speaking, uh, to the extent there's enforcement action, it's going to be overseen by courts, and the courts are going to come in and say, well, did you actually break the law as it existed? And the fact that an earlier SEC uh, might not have been as active doesn't necessarily change the law. So do you think there will be a sort of a a good time to be a, a lawyer on both sides. <laughs> you know, that's what's really sad. I think it's a great time to, to be a lawyer in a lot of these uh, different spaces. Uh, my preferred way would be for lawyers to have a little less work, but have a little less work by being brought into the picture and listened to a little earlier on. Mm, got it. Well, well thank you. So, um, Professor, uh, my, my final question for you is about the final uh, uh, end of LIBOR, uh, I think you were, you co-chaired a working group uh, on financial innovation and the, the working group on the LIBOR transition, moving away from the uh, uh, London interbank uh, offering rates and towards SOFR, a secured over owner rate. And I, I think that as of tomorrow, LIBOR, US dollar LIBOR is officially over. So as of June 30th, 2023, uh, it will, Tra uh, transition to risk-free reference rates such as SOFR. Tell us just a how significant is that for the financial system? What what benefits do you think there will be, and and how will that be different than uh, from the the old LIBOR world, which is going to be over in uh, about twenty four hours? Yes, and I will say none. Uh, this has been overdue, uh, so I'm glad to see finally the demise of LIBOR. Um, I mean, it's a it's a much longer backstory, as I'm sure you know. Uh, LIBOR really rose at a time when there was a very healthy interbank market uh, in the UK, in the United States, and a lot of places. Banks with excess liquidity would loan it to other banks. It was relatively safe. There was a little bit of a spread in there where there was a because they were unsecured loans. Uh, there was also uh, a little bit of credit risk. So what banks really liked about LIBOR over time as a reference rate is there was a, a little bit of softness so that as credit conditions changed and they were facing challenges on the liability side, uh, you know, there was some increase that they were getting on any uh variable rate loans that were tied to LIBOR on the asset side. So I, I think they liked having that um, as, as part of their structure. Uh, that being said, 2008 and the reforms that were adopted in the wake of 2008 dramatically changed the interbank lending market in ways that made LIBOR untenable. So I think people are oftentimes focused on the, the scandals that arose, 
But what really enabled those scandals is you had what had been a very active and thick market become very thin. And so you had an incredible, you know, it's like what is often reversed to referred to as the reverse pyramid or the inverted pyramid, uh, where you have a very small volume of activity uh, in the underlying uh, reference rate, uh, and then a huge volume of derivatives referencing that rate. So, so that makes it inherently vulnerable uh, to manipulation in a way that no reference rate should be. It does create some challenges for banks that were used to having a little bit of credit give uh, when they were using a, a variable interest rate. Uh, but I think on the, and there are specific challenges with so far, it's not a perfect reference rate by any means, uh, but I think you need to have a, a much more active uh, market if you want to create a reference rate that that anybody can rely on. So I'd say on the whole, the transition has been overdue. And what's really remarkable more about it is just that it lived on so long. I mean, 2008 really took away activity in these markets. 2012 made it absolutely clear that there were costs to the way the market was operating. And yet we saw LIBOR continue to be used. Everybody was just so accustomed to it. Uh, and there were some network benefits from using it that everyone just kept using it uh, despite the infirmities that were embedded into it. Uh, more striking, kind of some of the, the background language over what would happen if there ceased to be LIBOR uh, wasn't as robust as it should have been, which is part of why the transition has been so difficult. Uh, but I say, say la vie. I mean, this is... This is something that is overdue, so so I'm happy to see it go. Say, mm, Lavia, yeah, it really is interesting. Where if you have the underlying euro dollar market has very little activity uh, after the great financial crisis, but so many euro dollar contracts and interest rate contracts are based on that. It would be like if you know the stock of Apple AAPL you know only trades a few times, but there's just the the uh, options and puts and calls and derivatives on Apple is is incredibly liquid market. It's something is, is definitely wrong there. And uh, as of tomorrow, that system is is no longer uh, going to be there. Well, Professor Kate Judge, thank you so much uh, for joining us. People can find you on Twitter, of course, at Prof Kate Judge. Uh, thanks so much for for sharing your insights and thanks everyone for watching. Thank you for having me. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.